What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. All right. Well, uh, we're live again here with the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and uh, I have a special guest with me today. We'll go ahead and just get right into uh, introducing him. I have Braxton Hunter with me. And rather than uh, me talk about you, Braxton, why don't you go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself um, and you know let them know what, what you do here on yeah, YouTube as well. Yeah, happy to. So um, since we're on YouTube right now, I'll just go ahead and say that I um, am the host of Trinity Radio trinity radio you can get that at trinity radio or uh, youtube.com slash braxton hunter and i would definitely appreciate if you checked our channel out we basically do responses to atheists and we also have a weekly bible study that is a verse by verse where we go off on every theological issue that comes up and uh but that's what i do on youtube i am the president of trinity college of the bible and theological seminary in evansville indiana and I teach courses there related to apologetics and evangelism. So um, apologetics is important to me, and it's what I love to do and what I love to talk about. But the reason that I'm interested in apologetics is only insofar as it serves uh, what I believe my God's calling on my life is, which is to be an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist, to reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they might be saved. So apologetics is important and fun and stimulating, but I'm only interested in it insofar as it helps to build the kingdom. Well, great. I'm very glad to have you here, uh, Braxton. Thanks, Thanks for, for agreeing to do this. Yeah, now um, this uh, this podcast here, of course, by the name, is uh, is really focused on the pro-life position. But the topic that we have for today is, is more in uh, philosophy of mind, which may not be of interest to everyone who listens to the podcast. Uh, I, th I think it's interesting, and, and hopefully if you're not familiar with philosophy of mind, you'll still kind of stick around and listen you know, you may learn something or you may learn that you that you were right not to like it. Who knows? So what, what we're going to do here is we're actually going to be reviewing a recent debate between uh, our mutual friend, Eric Hernandez, and Maxwell Yates, who runs a YouTube channel called Atheist, Atheist Advocate or Atheist Advocate. I'm not sure if he's using that as a as a as a verb or as a noun, but that that's his his YouTube channel. And in the show notes, of course, I'll go ahead and post those as well, so that you can watch the the debate in its entirety at your leisure, if, if that's something that you would like to follow up and do. 
the, the primary reason that I that I wanted to invite you on, Braxton, was number one because you do have uh, you know a PhD and and a doctor in ministry, which is more than I have. I'm I'm basically just kind of self educated, and philosophy of mind is kind of one of my my blind spots on the abortion issue. I know I know a bit about philosophy of mind, but I haven't looked into it too deeply like I have other issues. So uh, so I wanted to call someone who's a you know an educated. Uh, apologist in case you know to, to get kind of a, an insight that i might not be able to offer that is something that i'm that i'm going to be rectifying eventually because uh, i actually find questions of identity and things like that to be actually pretty interesting so well and um, i should say that while i've picked up a lot um on this issue because mm-hmm. of dealing with atheists and having debates and things like you've done as well um i have knowledge here and i've done a lot of reading because my area has to do with or my my area of special interest personally has to do with Uh, human freedom and what the nature Mm. of human freedom is. But I have limitations when it comes to the conscious, uh, the, the philosophy of mind. So um, maybe you and I can feel through this together. And in (laughs) in terms of my degrees, the most important credential I have is that I'm a follower of Jesus and, and you have that too. So, and I don't say that just to sound humble. That's really what, what I mean. And so, um, yeah, so maybe we can together, we can work our way through this. Right. And, you know, it's, it's not like we're, we're reviewing a debate here between Michael Tooley and J.P. Moreland, mm-hmm. uh, not to, you know, put Eric or, or Maxwell Yates down, but, you know, they're not professional philosophers either. So this is a this is kind of more on our on our level to where we can, you know, discuss what's what's kind of going on here. Because sure. uh, I'll tell you, you know, J.P. Moreland, he's like light years ahead of me. I've read uh, his book, Body and Soul Through Twice, mm-hmm. and some of it still goes over my head. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that's good. I read the the one that he wrote that I think was a little more uh, streamlined. That was just mm. called Soul or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a copy of that one too, uh, but I haven't read it because I, I was basically told that it's just kind of a more lay level summary of what's in Body and Soul. Although <laughs> maybe that would help uh, facilitate an understanding if I were to <laughs> read that one. So who knows? All right, Braxton and I kind of discussed this beforehand, but what we're going to do is uh, if you happened to listen to my broadcast from Monday, where Nathan and I were reviewing another debate, Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of summarize Eric's opening arguments. And then we'll actually play the video from Maxwell Yates's portion where he replies to Eric at first, and then later on when when he actually gives arguments of his own. So to begin with, the question was on, does the soul exist, essentially? And, you know, Maxwell Yates kind of came off as, as really arrogant throughout the, the debate. But I'm kind of thinking that it, it's probably just tongue in cheek for the most part. It is. In case anyone's not aware, that mm-hmm. is an alter ego for Stelman Smith, who is an apologist. So um, the reason that okay. it's called Atheist Advocate is because Maxwell Yates is a fictional character that mm-hmm. Stelman Smith uses to provoke and debate other apologists okay that's that's kind of the impression that i got as i watched the debate in its entirety and even the the guy that they brought on at the end what was kind of like oh i'm surprised you're still here because you you were destroyed before and then he was actually pretty cordial for the rest of the discussion and so i I figured that was probably just like a tongue-in-cheek thing that he has going on there okay yeah because i i did not know about maxwell yates at all i I just found out about the debate a day or two before because eric had told me about it yeah and what's great is sometimes in my live streams Stellman Smith, the apologist who plays Maxwell Yates, will come on and have arguments with Maxwell Yates in the stream while we're going as if they're two separate people. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you've never seen Spellman or Yates in the same room together. So, uh, you know, who knows? (laughs) 
Uh, so the debate resolution was essentially, does the soul exist? Or the soul exists with uh, Eric arguing Crow and, and Yates arguing Khan. Eric essentially gave two overarching arguments, that his first one is that consciousness is not physical, and his second one is that I am more than a brain and a body. And he gave some examples to underscore each of those two points. And so the, the first one re- argues that consciousness is not physical. He argues that brain states do not have physical properties. So for example, a car has physical properties. But when I think about a car, my thought about the car does not have physical properties. And so by uh, Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of, of uh, or what is it, Leibniz's law of the identity? Uh, yeah, I, I think like the full name is like the law of the in, in, indiscernibility of identity identicals or something like that but yeah essentially it's just a lot it's just a law of identity from leibniz that if if two things have the same properties then they're the same thing so since there are things that are true of my brain states that are not true of the thing in question uh then then they're not the same thing so that if if a car has physical properties my brain states do not have physical properties so since my brain state and the and the car are different one does not have physical properties one does then they're not the same thing and so consciousness then is not a is not a physical thing. And then the second one where he says, I am more than a brain and a body. His first, uh, first supporting argument is that personhood is indivisible. So that if, you know, my, my physical body is divisible, you can, uh, you know, I can lose my arm in an industrial accident and I'll have less of my body, but I do not become less of a person by losing my arm. So while my body is divisible, my my uh, personhood or my soul, uh, it kind of sounded like he was kind of using personhood and soul interchangeable, uh, interchangeably. And so my my personhood cannot be divided, even though my physical body can. The second one is that I retain my identity through change. And so even though my body takes on different you know, it changes from, from time to time. That, for example, the physical body I have now is different from the physical body that I had 10 years ago, because every seven years or so, all of the cells die and kind of regenerate themselves. So I have a different physical body from when I was 10 years ago, but my identity remained the same. I'm, I'm numerically the same person I was now as I was then, despite the changes in my body. We have this problem with the continuity of identity if we are merely physical bodies and that, and that, that, and that we don't have this immaterial soul as well, because in what sense do we as persons continue to exist um, because all the cells in our body cycle out, or at least most of them. And, um, and, and so some people have tried to ground that in memory and said, well, the reason that you, you, you have this continued identity is because your memories survive from the past. But this doesn't make sense because I don't remember anything before, let's say I was three years old. Um, am I a different person now than I was before I was three year, years old? I mean, we we talk like that. We say, well, I'm a different person than I used to be. But we're talking about in a very specific and literal sense. You, you would have to say that. You would also have to say that a person who has amnesia and doesn't remember anything from the past uh, is literally a different person. But we don't want to say that either. And what this all comes back down to is um, what is uh, Plutarch wrote about Theseus. Um, and Theseus, there was this ship. This is, by the way, where the where Hunger Games uh, movie franchise comes from. Uh, part of it is in, is influenced by um, Plutarch. But in fact, there's a character named Plutarch. But there's this ship called the Ship of Theseus. And uh, it's the ship that Theseus, this great warrior, came home with. And they decide to keep it as a memorial to Theseus. But after you know several decades or 100 years or whatever, they had had to replace all the parts of the ship as each part became weathered and fell apart. And they had replaced all of those such that um, every aspect of the ship, every single part had been replaced 
So the question becomes, is that still the same ship? Is that still Theseus's ship? Well, that's where the debate lies. I would say, of course, that's not Theseus's ship. It's kind of like the old thing. Yeah, I have the axe that George Washington used to cut down the cherry th tree. Now I've changed the, now the axe head has been changed five times and the handle's been changed 14 times, but this is the axe. Well, no, that's not the axe, right? That's a different right. object. And in the same way, if every part of our physical body goes through this process of change um, and cycles out, well, then if you think you're the same person, then, and there hasn't been dozens of iterations of you, then you have to believe there's an immaterial part of us that is our soul that we could rightly call our personhood. And I think what I was going to say about, since this is typically a pro-life show, I think it's important to note that it, that when we talk about, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but when we talk about uh, a child in the womb, that child, we can talk about the scientific aspect of it, what's happening scientifically, but um, it's it's just not a debatable point that that is a, a living human being from the moment of conception. That's not debatable. That's scientifically true. The question is, at what point does it become a person? And that is not a scientific question. That's a philosophical or perhaps even theological question that has nothing that no scientist can answer. And all they can do is guess or arbitrarily choose at what point this fetus should be considered a person. And so I think these issues of philosophy of mind do play into even the um, abortion question. But I, I'm sorry right. I took off with that. You were <laughs> No, it's fine. Uh, that was actually a point that uh, I wanted to make, too. Uh which I started to, and then I, I kind of uh, lost my train of thought there. But yeah, that, uh, even though someone may not specifically have an interest in philosophy of mind, this is important to the abortion question because there are philosophers who will say that, yeah, scientifically life begins at fertilization, but you don't actually come to exist until sometime later in the pregnancy uh, because you need some kind of, you know, especially if there are property dualists like Michael Tooley, they would argue that in order for you to persist through time, you have to be psychologically connected to yourself. So until you have the right amount of psychological cognizance or, or whatever the term would be, you know, when you're sufficiently self-aware, that kind of thing, then you can say that you persist through time because you can see yourself as existing through time. And the yeah. pro-life view, traditionally grounded in, in, well, it depends on who you ask, because Christians have defended this, but also we can ground it in Aristotelian metaphysics. I myself am a Thomist, and to say that, no, being a person is not about the kinds of functions you can perform. It's about the kind of thing that you are, because yeah. as long as your nature remains the same, you remain the same thing. So I was me when I was conceived as that single-celled zygote, uh, and I'm the same numerically identical individual now as I was back then, even though I didn't have anything going on uh, upstairs, so to speak, with the brain going on. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. all really good. I agree. Yeah, so this definitely has implications as well. Uh, and then, yeah, Eric's third argument was just the argument from free will. If we have a free will, that implies that there's a soul, because if we're, if we don't have a soul, then we're just material uh, material entities that are uh, dependent on all of our, uh, you know, everything that's kind of gone into making us what we are. And so we would kind of be determined by our, uh, determined solely by our experiences and our environment. So in order for us to actually have a free will, there must be a soul as well. So that was um, Eric's third point. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's a, a brief uh, brief summary of, of Eric's arguments. Again, I'll be posting the the link to the debate in the show notes so that you can watch the debate in its entirety and uh, try, try not to be put off by Maxwell Yates's uh, arrogance like, like I was. I've seen the, the error of my ways. 
So uh, I have the debate oh, fired up. So I've got to go ahead and share screen now. Okay, so yeah, here he's here Eric's finishing up his free will, and Maxwell's going to start in in about uh, ten seconds from now. All right. Sure, sure. So I do very much appreciate your presentation there. Uh, forgive me if, if, as I'm going through these uh, counterpoints. If I miss something you believe to be particularly relevant, uh, I wasn't able to get notes of everything. But if I miss something, just remind me of it. If you believe it should be visited again, so. <clears throat> You said consciousness is not physical, and I would agree. A, lot of, a large portion of the arguments you made would not apply to me because I do believe in emergentism. I do believe that consciousness is something that emerges uh, from physical things, but of course it can ultimately be explained by those physical things. We don't need to appeal to uh, magic. or. Okay, let, let's stop right here real quick. How much do you know about emergentism, Braxton? Well, it's just the idea that, if I understand everything correctly, the idea is that um, kind of like if you have a magnet, um, you have this field that sort of um, uh, surrounds the magnet that emanates from the magnet that is not exactly the same thing as the magnet and would, you know, it is physical, but it doesn't strike us as physical in the same way our mind is somewhat is emergent upon our brains in that way. Yeah. So because as I was watching the debate later on uh, near, near the end of the debate, I'm not entirely convinced Maxwell has it has a great grasp on emergentism and I'm speaking as someone who's not an expert in it either so uh you know take this with a grain of salt as well but he, he talks about how certain things kind of emerge from from a, from a set of things like he talks about how when you put an, a lot of a, enough bricks together a wall kind of emerges from that and I don't think a wall emerging from bricks is a good example of what emergentism actually says because when you look at the nature of bricks it's in the nature of bricks to be able to be piled on top of each other and to build a wall so emergentism uh what what emerges in the view of emergentism is something that is not uh explainable by the constituent parts themselves so a wall would not be a good example of that because a wall can be explained by the constituent parts of the bricks uh, he also gives the example of water, which, from what I've heard, is kind of the stock example of emergentism because, yeah, the, the, you have the water molecules, but there's no reason that when you put the water molecules together that they should be wet. And as far as I can tell, this is kind of this is even a kind of a controversial idea, even among philosophers, too. As I recall, it, I don't think he does much to actually defend his view on the origins. Right, and, and it's just an attempt to say, look, we know that when we put certain things together, we get surprising results like the wetness of water, so to speak, or water itself, rather, or the magnetic field that surrounds a magnet. But um, but then, OK, yeah, weird stuff happens. What is the reason to believe that's what's going on here? And the only explanation for why that we should think that's what's going on here is because we have no better explanation. And um, that's just not good enough because hmm. we actually do have a better explanation. And it not only solves this problem, but several other problems that are raised. Uh, we'll go and continue on here with the, with the next portion. Or superstitious beliefs or anything of the sort. Um, you said not a scientific debate, but of course that would presuppose your position because if we can use science to prove that everything we think is consciousness or think is a soul boils down to physical explanations, then we've won the debate. But if you're just going to presuppose, well, there must be something metaphysical that science can't touch, well, then you're simply arguing in a circle. Um, I don't know what this note, uh, you wrote a body without a 
uh, soul is a corpse. But of course, when people are killed or murdered, it's not somebody, somebody reaches in them and rips out their soul. No, they, they affect their body in some way. I would say a, a body without, a, say, a brain, if you blow a bullet through someone's brain, is a corpse. So, so these are things we know that if you affect the body, that's what kills a person. It's not some kind of mystical uh, taking of their soul. Um, sensations, you said, these were talking about the law of identity. Uh, sensations are things that we experience that, but of course, for example, people have medical disorders where they can't feel pain. So we do know that you know, a sensation, of course, touches nerve endings and they ultimately go into my brain. And if you affect that part of the brain, it's not as though there's an immaterial soul that can still feel pain. No, just, there is no experience of pain once you affect the brain. Um, relationship. Yes, you said you pointed to relationships that someone can point out uh, correlations between certain neurons firing and sensations and neurons firing and choices that this doesn't prove they're identical. Again, well, again, of course, I agree they're not identical, but I do think we can uh, prove that uh, all the things that we attribute to the mind are caused by the brain. Um, the aggregate point. Um, you should know better, Matt Dillahunty, I do believe corrected you on this when you said a human isn't, or a soul isn't kind of an aggregate of things. Well, we Okay, so I'm going to pause here real quick because uh, this is where I, I kind of chimed in that I wasn't happy with Maxwell Yates's uh, debate, debate performance uh, because he started talking about how Eric had been destroyed by Matt Dillahunty in a debate before. In fact, he brought your name up too here in a moment, uh, Braxton. Yeah, like, like, he, he, he destroyed me, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thanks for setting me straight on, on Maxwell Yates. So we'll go on. Yeah. Yeah, on Maxwell here. is a assumed identity that does not hold the views of the person assuming his identity. <laughs> right. Okay. So I, I do like to, to make these as educational as I can too, because I, I've, I judge speech and debate with Lincoln debate, uh, Lincoln Douglas said debate tournaments. It, it's kind of bad form to refer back to, to previous debates. You want, what matters are the arguments that you present now. So just if anyone out there is like interested in doing debates, really bad form to, you know, say that he was destroyed before in a different debate. So, um, but again, that's just an assumed identity. So that's just some, some food for thought there in case we have some budding debaters listening in. Okay. So we'll go ahead and continue on here. I do know from the V.S. Ramasasa, I can't pronounce that, V.S. Ramasadran uh, studies where he did these split brain studies that they cut a person's brain in half. And of course, we do know that the sep the consciousnesses were separated, that there was two distinct people that could identify as such. The left uh, brain, high side of the brain could talk, the right side of the brain could not, but of course it could write, controlling the left hand. And one identified as an atheist, the other identified as a theist. One put a cigarette in its mouth, the other one took it out. These are completely different people. So I, I don't buy your uh, argument that uh, so is, the, or that personhood is indivisible. And this was one I was able to grab a screenshot of, and I do want to put up for a moment uh, to address it. This was uh, Eric's argument from the indivisibility of personhood. Had you heard of the split brain studies that he was talking yeah. about here? Okay, yeah, I... it, comes, it comes up in free will uh, issues too, which, as I say, these are kind okay. of related. And um, and basically, these they didn't know exactly what this. I forget. I think it was um, people with um, epilepsy that they were trying to. They didn't understand exactly what this aspect of the brain, this 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 thing, uh, this structure in the brain really did but they knew that if they cut it cut it apart that it helped with epileptics and i could be getting that wrong but it's something like that and uh, they, no, I, think, I think that's right 
yeah and they they didn't think they didn't see that there was really any other negative ramifications of having done this um and even these people would go to psychologists and they would talk with them and psychologists would say this person's fine it's nothing nothing has changed but as they performed further experiments on these individuals they found that there were uh things like um if they threw an image of a couple of words up on the screen um the person would would verbally say that they saw one thing like they would put rings and let's say keys in a bag and they would say tell me what you saw and the person would say i saw the word key and then they would say pull out of that bag what you saw and the person would pull out a ring and it was really weird because it was like part of their brain was was getting one message and the other one was getting another one to the and then there, it goes off from there in, in these weird directions where it really does start to seem like these two sides of the brain have these different personalities and even different beliefs. Now, <clears throat> I don't remember how Eric answered this and whatever he said is to be preferable to whatever I say. But um, what I think is important to note here is that the way that I can, Eric uses a guitar, but the, the, way, I, um, the way I illustrate this is to say, it's like you, your brain, the physical mechanics of your brain is like a radio, uh, like an AM FM radio. And, um, if it if it becomes damaged, then the music that's coming through the radio from the signal from the tower is going to be uh, is going to be distorted in some way and not sound as it should. But it doesn't mean that you damaged the signal coming from the tower. It means that there's something wrong with the mechanics. Well, all that this sort of a thing illustrates, it doesn't illustrate that there are two persons present. It illustrates, to my mind, that we have these different things going on in our brain that in a, in a person who has not had this, um, this procedure, they're able to integrate these thoughts and, and in a way that uh, can be expressed as a unified whole. So that if, if there may be parts of your brain that lead you to suspect atheism, there may be parts of your brain that lead you to suspect theism, but in an integrated brain where both sides are working together, you can actually come to a conclusion about that, um, that is coherent. Whereas without this, what we're getting is not two different persons, but one person who is unable to articulate thoughts or express thoughts in a unified, cogent, coherent way. So it's just that you've damaged the radio. That's all I see going on there. What are your thoughts? I had heard of these split brain studies before, but I hadn't thought of them in a long time. I did some a little bit of research on them. I came across an article on Psychology Today, which talked about the split brain studies. Uh, the atheism thing and the cigarette thing didn't really come up, but they talked about some pretty bizarre behavior, like one person who had had it done, one hand wanted to slap his wife and the other hand would actually grab the, the hand that wanted to slap his wife and stop it. And some, some other, uh, there were a couple other examples too that are just kind of really bizarre. And that's, that, those were kind of my thoughts too, that, that you were expressing that as I was looking at this, you know, cause the, you know, we talk about how there's like, all of us have a sin nature, obviously, and all of us have sinful thoughts, but you know, especially if you're a Christian, you believe in discipline. You want to discipline yourself so that you don't act on these sinful thoughts that you have. And so, you know, there might be some part of you that would lash out and slap your, your wife if, if she upsets you. But there's another part of you that realizes, no, that would be wrong. That, that would not be the appropriate way to handle it. And you would be able to uh, to overcome your, your baser instincts that you wanted to do violence to someone. And so I'm thinking, well, 
you know, I'm no psychologist, obviously, but what this kind of implies to me is that we need both halves of our brain in order to make appropriate decisions. Because, you know, one, you know, like they say how like the left brain is more logical, the right brain is more emotional or something like that. It could be that that both halves of our brain are necessary in order for us to make ethically appropriate decisions. And that's kind of what it was, you know, implying to me. As someone who's not a psychologist, that, I think so. you said that absolutely beautifully. I mean, if the listener would just consider the question, what is more likely that when you that when you in some way dissect a portion of your brain, mm-hmm. that suddenly two persons are present now where there were previously one, or is it more realistic to think that the way that your brain integrated, uh, you know, worked together to help you express, you know, a particular desire or thought and weigh those things out? has now been damaged in some way. I mean, I think that's yeah. much more obvious and we could, we could probably do similar things with other organs where the controversy of consciousness and choice isn't at play. So I just think this one fails. Same here. And I, I think Maxwell brought it up because Eric had given the argument about how personhood is not divisible, but with, with the, the amount of reading I've done on philosophy of mind, usually the example brought up, and I, I don't remember the guy's name, but back in the 1800s, there was a, a, a railroad guy you know, built, helping to build the railroad. And some accident had happened that he actually got a railroad spike through his brain. Mm-hmm. And he ended up basically with a completely different personality after the doctors you know, treated him for that, that he was a completely different person. He was more more violent, believed different things and all of these things. And so someone who who takes a more materialistic view to the person would say, well, yeah, the, you know, that, that railroad worker died and a new person arose in his place because he's someone who's completely different because he had a new personality. Someone like us, who's a Christian, no matter you know what your view on the soul, I'm sure you'd probably come to the same conclusion, but you would essentially say, well, no, he's the same person. It's just his brain was damaged, causing uh, his personality traits to shift, but he was the same person, even though his personality changed afterward, he was still numerically the same individual, which which also also goes back to what you're talking about, like amnesia patients. If you lose all of your memories to a materialistic kind of view, you would have to say that the person dies with a new person arising in his place. Right. But someone who believes that identity is tied to your underlying nature, you would say, no, it's the same person who just happened to lose all his memories and has to regain, you know, all of his his, you know, abilities and things like that. I agree. I, it's, it's again, goes back to you damaged the radio. So mm-hmm. it's different. It sounds different now than it did before. Just like the guy's personality expresses differently or to right. use Eric's example, um, you damaged a guitar string. That doesn't mean you damaged the note C, right? It's mm-hmm. just uh, the equipment is not the same thing. And of course that goes all back to his thing that the, the physical stuff, the structure is not the same thing as the, the thought, right or the intention right yeah and as a as a musician i don't play guitar but as a musician i approve of of eric's analogy what do you play well i'm a classically trained clarinetist and uh, i also play piano and keyboard with more uh, contemporary styles oh good for you i so wish that my parents had been more abusive and forced me to play piano <laughs> because i i wish because i i learned how to play guitar but it was only to impress girls and that never worked anyway so <laughs> yeah well you know it's never too late to learn that's right that's true Okay, so we'll go ahead and and continue on here. Well, according to your own first premise, dualism can't be true if you're either a purely physical object or an immaterial soul. You've merely refuted your own position with your first premise there. Uh, Purely physical objects can be divided and come in percentages or degrees. Agreed. 
I can I cannot be divided, but of course the studies that I just cited uh, would prove that idea wrong. So I shall take that down. Um, 80% of a brain full person. Well, we still define people as part of the human race. Of course, characteristics, like say someone is particularly caring or has an endearing quality about their personality. Well, of course, if you cut their foot off, you don't affect that part of the brain that uh, causes those characteristics. So we still identify people. It's more of a sentimental thing. We identify people as part of the human race. But of course, I would say if personhood is all the things caused by the brain, the characteristics, you know, how someone has tastes for particular food or preferences for certain movies. Uh, of course, that can be divisible or, or partial if you take away those parts of the brain. The person, <laughs> if you take away uh, all possibility of taste, they're not the same person they were before. We're, but we, we sentimentalize these things and still say, well, you're part of the human race. So we're still going to call you a full person. Uh, and then the last thing... Okay, so here's something I kind of wanted to address, too, is I think Eric and Maxwell uh, were kind of operating under different understandings of personhood. And it wasn't really something that that was really, I mean, Eric did uh, define a few terms in his opening, but I, I think that Maxwell and Eric kind of had different understandings of personhood in that I think Eric was using personhood as something more akin to the soul. And Maxwell was probably thinking of personhood akin to something that we attribute to people that, that grants them rights. One thing I would have liked was maybe to have a little bit more of a discussion of what they both understood personhood to mean. Yeah. Uh, you, Maxwell here is talking about, well, if we're pure, purely physical, then yeah, you know, if you cut off my arm, I will be less of a person because, I, because I'm, I, I'm less of me. If that's all I am, if all I am are just physical aggregates, then if I lose a limb, then yes, I become less of a person because I become less of me because I lost that limb. And so that that was one thing I, I, I kept hoping would, would kind of come up is because it really seemed like they were operating under different understandings of personhood, which I think caused them to talk past each other a bit. Yeah, I think whether you're, you know, however you conceive of the soul debate, I think that what you could say, is, and by the way, am I like way loud now? I probably am. Oh, yeah. I, uh, Eric said that your mic is noticeably quieter. Yeah, I thought I mean, so too. So I actually turned the volume up a bit. Okay, I turned mic. myself up a little bit, but I think I was go going hot for a second. Um, But okay. um, I, uh, I, the way I think of a person is an experiencer, someone who is, um, uh, who, who is, who can experience and, um, perhaps, um, you know, you wouldn't want to say some would say a conscious experiencer, but then that doesn't make any sense because when someone is unconscious, they're still a person, right? So someone who is an experiencer or capable of experiencing things, um, the, but you're right. Eric's conception, I think is more like, um, the classical understanding of the soul in metaphysics. Whereas what uh, Maxwell Yates is putting forward is, uh, and he's going to just love it that we're talking about him with this level of sophistication. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, but uh, well, uh, Maxwell, if you do listen in, sorry for, for getting you wrong there, buddy. <laughs> but, but he is thinking of a materialist perspective where to say you're a person is to say that you are, you're synonymous with your physical body. So yeah. And that, if that's true, then yeah, maybe you're less of a person. If you cut off someone's arm, I think that plays right into Eric's argument. The strange thing about it is, well, it's not strange because he's really trying to go full bore with this as, as a assumed identity, but 
you know, we all know that we all know that if you cut off part of your, if you cut off your arm, you're not less of a person. Naturalists know that whether they'll admit that or not. If Maxwell Yates said to me, I'm less of a person. If my arm is gone, I'm just going to say, I don't believe you because that's not how, that's not how we really think. I might not say it that bluntly, but well, to him, I would. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe, <laughs> I don't believe you um, because we all know. Now, the only caveat, and I don't quite know how what Eric would say about this, but um, Christian, the Christian perspective would say that um, what God wants, however you want to talk about what you are, um, because Maxwell Yates makes an interesting point there about, well, if you think you are a soul and you have a body sort of thing, uh, like the C.S. Lewis sort of thing, then you're then you're not a substance dualist. You're a substance monist. You just believe you're a soul. Your body is something you inhabit like you get in your car and drive around. Um, but but that really is to miss the point. I don't know what Eric says to that exactly or if he did. But what but what um, what I would clarify is that the Christian conception is that what God wants for us is to be souls in bodies. He wants us to that is to be um, that is to be according to God's design. And in the end, in the kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have physical bodies. It's not like what you hear at Christian funerals where some preacher gets up there and says, well, he's left the confines of this mortal body and now he's free like he's always wanted to be. And, you know, he's no, no, no. That's that's like some kind of Gnosticism as if there's something physical, there's something wrong about a physical body. So it is true that God wants us to be souls in bodies, but it's not true that we cease to be persons without a physical body. I think that would clarify it up. So I think it's fair to say what, what Eric says, but also to understand that we are substance dualist as God intends us. And that is a, a physical uh, body and uh, yeah, a physical body and an immaterial soul. I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead here a little bit because there is something that was, that was actually pretty interesting that came up. Obviously the debate uh, was two hours and 17 minutes. So we're not, we're not going to be able to, uh, to get through everything here, but there was something that come up, which I thought was actually really interesting. And Eric actually made the example of a car too, which I thought was, it was a very helpful example. I believe Maxwell said something in response to that, which I thought was actually kind of interesting and could kind of actually warrant a discussion as well. So, so it's so Moreland gives this illustration. He says, Suppose I'm in, I, I'm trapped in a car, they welded the door shut. It would follow that as long as I'm in this car, my ability to move around town is going to be dependent on the proper function of the car. So, if the car, as long as the car can move, I can move while I'm in the car. And let's say my car steering wheel is broken where I can only move left. What if I can move left? But once I'm able to get out of the car, I can move wherever I want. But that doesn't show that I am a car just because I'm confined to the to the damages of the car. So that would be a fair point if and only if we were somehow able to access the soul of, say, a, a person who has Alzheimer's and, and access the soul and prove that they actually know all of the things that they can't manifest. But for all, into, for all we know, they actually don't know the things that they have apparently forgotten. Well, I never said they did. And it's interesting you said that would only be true if we can access. No, it wouldn't only be true if we can access. That's more of an epistemic position. We would know it would be true if we can access that, but it wouldn't only be true if we could access that. Even if we can access that, it would still be true. I said it would be a good point if. So I'm I'm acknowledging that it's an epistemic idea there, but I would say Hmm. precisely because we can't have that epistemic Oh, it's it's an irrelevant point. It's purely... so, so, so we're you know, so you keep mentioning this a few times about the soul being ad hoc, but then we go to the three arguments I I use to show that I am more than a brain and body, 
indivisibility to personhood, um, uh, identity through change, and free will. The thing that he brought up, which I thought was was pretty interesting and worth a discussion, and we, we actually, I think, have already hit upon it now that now that he talked about it. But he talks about how we can't access the soul to make sure that someone that that someone you know actually remembers uh, remembers these things. And this is something I know that J.P. Moreland holds this position. I've never heard him talk about it though, so I don't know exactly. What, what arguments he uses for this, but I, I know that he believes that memories aren't really stored in the brain, but they're more like stored in the soul. And that's a position that is that, that I haven't really heard him talk about. Do you, do you happen to know more about his position there? I don't. Now, I know that would be really consistent with the notion. Well, it would be consistent with two things. One, if one takes near-death experiences to be in any way uh, evidential, um, not, not talking about what the people experience of the afterlife, but they're, uh, you know, the idea that they are outside of their body watching surgeons work or whatever like that, but they still have an awareness of who they are and they remember why they're in the hospital. It would, it would make sense of that. It would also make sense of the idea that um, when we are in heaven, we still remember and are aware of uh, what our lives were like on earth. So I've heard people say at the very least, you can't say that the soul doesn't have some kind of a redundancy system. And um, so I don't know that really that, that idea that, that you're referencing from Moreland, I, I don't really know anything about that, but, I, but I will say this, this is a good example of, um, and, and what often happens where an apologist is, so there's been some suggestion that something do, is, doesn't work or can't work. And then the apologist will say something like, well, here's a way it could work. And then all they're doing is presenting a defeater. They're just trying to say, I'm not saying that I know this is how this works. I'm saying that if what I'm suggesting is even remotely possible, then that means that your claim that it can't be that way is it fails because it could work that way. We do this with uh, the why would God allow suffering uh, quite a bit. Um, we may not know why God does, but here are some possibilities. And as long as any of them are possibly true, then 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 God may be just in this, right? So right. Um, that's for and like with the car thing, like I don't know, I didn't since you just played that clip and it's been a couple of weeks or whatever since the debate. I don't remember. Um, I my take was that Eric is just expressing how he thinks about this and how it can conceivably work and be coherent and be possible. And so what the skeptic then does is to say, well, you don't have any proof of that. Well, no, I'm giving you, a, I'm giving you how I understand it or a possible explanation. And I liken this, it, like in the story in the Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, that um, it's like, it's like we're having a discussion about some, something to do with the story and whether it's cohesive or not, or how we explain why a character acted this way or that way on their way to Mordor. And then someone comes in and says, yeah, but Mordor doesn't exist anyway. So why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because we're putting ourselves in the story, assuming it to try and see, does it make sense? And I think this happens with this discussion where we're trying to make sense of how the soul works, how mm-hmm. substance dualism can work and make sense. Yeah. You're, and you're saying, yeah, but you can't prove it. Well, we think we do have evidence for it, but it's not a very sophisticated response at all to just say, well, yeah, but, you know, like that. Yeah. Now, uh, Jim Amberg. Uh, said that Maxwell had no dogs in the background and didn't speak of your genitals. So he had a little part of clear. I'm guessing that's in reference to a past debate that Eric had. I think that's in reference to the scholar fiction debate. All right. Yeah, that, that's what I, I haven't seen, but uh, I, I bring attention to it because uh, my dog did actually bark about that. No, it wasn't your dog. It, I heard your yeah. dog, but it wasn't your dog. Yeah. So I, I, I turned it off quickly in case he was going to 
uh, you know, cause a ruckus, which she didn't, thankfully. But uh, yeah, so that's one tick against me, I guess. Is is my my dog made an un, made an unofficial appearance on the uh, on the show today? Hey, that's perfectly fine. We as long as uh, scholar fiction was able to infest this with talk of dogs and genitals, I, I guess. But uh, <laughs> right. so, anyway. so I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead again here and now because I'd like to address the arguments that that Maxwell raises. Now, he said he had three arguments, but he only got around to presenting two of them. We'll go to the first one here, which starts at, at about... By the way, this is kind of funny with Eric in the chat because I'm quite sure he probably thinks I'm expressing his views wrongly on at least a couple of points. Oh. So. Well, you know, because uh, I, I I told him specifically that, that I was going to have you, that I was going to ask you to come on to talk about it. And then I told him that, you know, I, I would have invited him on, but I wasn't sure if it was appropriate to bring him on to review his own debate. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, speaking as someone who does judge, who, who does judge Lincoln Douglas style debates, every debater ever thinks that they won the debate. And so I, I at least wanted to bring someone on who wasn't uh, participating in the debate to kind of, you know, review it a bit. So this is where Maxwell Yates is now defending his con position that the soul does not exist. And so he's going to present two arguments to that. Hopefully end. They will I forgot be about that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, which one is the first one? Oh, this would be the interaction problem. Okay. So I wanted to stop this here real quick because because uh, I, I do study logic. And this first argument is constructed very poorly. Now, I, I understand what he's trying to get at here with this argument, but he did not construct it very well. So the argument, as stated, I would say is logically invalid, even though I, I understand the argument he's trying to make. And if I were addressing this in a, in a paper or something, obviously I would try and steel man it, uh, be as charitable as possible in trying to create the argument as he intended. Uh, his next argument is constructed a lot better, uh, but this one here is kind of not constructed very well, but he'll go into it and kind of explain his oh, argument sorry. here. Premise one, space and spaceless, material and immaterial are excluded middles. That is to say, you either have one or the other. Premise two, for an integration between two things, there must exist a context. That is a middle ground in which that interaction takes place. Otherwise, they cannot be causally related. Premise three, the mind is related to the material and spatial world. Conclusion, therefore, the mind is material and exists in space. Therefore, the soul does not exist. What are your thoughts on this? Okay, so before we go on, do you kind of want to give your thoughts on this argument here? Yes. So ignoring, like you said, about whether, you know, the problems with the structure of the argument, um, mm -hmm. we get the point that he's trying to make. And the most important point that I think he's trying to make has to do with what's called the interaction problem. How mm -hmm. is it that if you're saying you've got this immaterial substance, the soul, and then you've got the physical substances that make up the brain, how is it that basically saying these two can't interact because there's no middle ground for them to interact within. Um, and here there's a couple of ways that I would answer that. And uh, I don't, one of these may, the first may be a way that Eric answers it. Although I think he probably says something else too. And that is to say, I don't know. I don't have to know how something works to know that it works. When I start my car, I don't understand everything about the mechanics of a car, but I can still get in my car and drive around and know that it's working. Um, and so, so that would be one thing, but there's actually something a bit more sophisticated that I would say, I've never heard Eric say this, but, um, but I thought of this in preparation for my debate with Dan Barker on free will. And that is, um, so 
so uh and, and it gets a little weird because we have to talk about quantum physics but in quantum mechanics i spent the first part of this year studying quantum mechanics because i want to understand it better and um we have we have this uh uh quantum superposition that is illustrated by the double slit experiments and i you don't have to understand all the nuance of that to know that um when you when you measure this uh movement of this wave uh, form that is happening um it it collapses into a particular place that we call the quantum superposition and it there is something extremely counterintuitive about how all this works but the simplest way to think about it is that it seems that most many of the interpretations say when you measure it it changes from a wave to a particle and collapses to a position uh, whereas otherwise it would have manifested, it would seem as though it, it could be at every position. And the reason for this is because there's a conscious observer. Now, some scientists would say, you can't say that. All you can say is that when you measure it, well, why is it that in measuring it, it changes this? It's because down the line, you're getting to a conscious observer. At least that's how some people think of it. In other words, by observing something, you actually, in some way that we don't uh, entirely understand, although there are many theories, you affect it just by observing it without physically interacting with it in any way. And uh, that is so that actually serves as a possible. Remember, this is just a defeater. This is a possible explanation for the interaction problem. Your soul impacts the physical body in something like the uh, in, in a way like the observation. And that observation occurs by you living your life within this physical body. One could go even further um, with uh, Roger Penrose has this thing that has to do with microtubules and it's called the quantum consciousness and all these kinds of things. But it's basically an extrapolation of what I'm describing here, whether you believe in soul or not the soul. Um, so, so to summarize, uh, we can make changes in quantum in the quantum realm by observation. Um, that's, that would be one idea. And then the second thing is, so mere observation can affect the physical. Therefore, it's at least possible that by simply uh, by simply the observation of living your life, there's an interaction between soul and body. I think that's based on science. It's not I haven't proven it, but it seems possible and it seems uh, a likely explanation for the interaction problem. And so I think we have a fine philosophical defeater to the claim that it can't happen, which means that his conclusion, which is very strong, therefore, the soul does not exist, can't go through. And that would be my thoughts on it. I have nothing really to add to that. The only other things I would say are just kind of talking about the structural problems with his argument here. Uh, for example, he says in premise three, the mind is related to the material and spatial world, but things can be related to other things in all sorts of different ways. Now he uses causally related in premise two. So I'm guessing he means the mind is causally related to the material and spatial world. But even then, like we were talking about, it could be in relation to the interaction problem that if the mind is causally related to the material and spatial world, then you would kind of think, well, the mind is probably material because an immaterial thing can't causally interact with things in the material and spatial world. But yeah, you, you addressed all that. But, uh, here's, but, but this would serve as one possible suggestion for how something immaterial, an immaterial observer could impact the physical world based on findings from quantum physics. Yeah, that would be uh, a way to approach it. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go ahead and, and continue on now. And in the, he actually, yeah. So one of the things is he just kind of presents the argument and then right away he asks Eric for his thoughts on it. 
whereas what, what he really should have done is talk about the argument a little bit, because as stated, you know, I mean, there, there are several questions I'd have for him before I'd even want to take a crack at trying to address this argument. So he, he really should have at least said a few words on each of the premises to show how they relate to each other or how one leads to the other, that kind of thing. So we'll go ahead and just play here and listen to Maxwell's and Eric's interaction a little bit here. Yes. <laughs> okay, I thought you were going to go through all of them. Okay, we'll do one at a time, I guess. Uh, we'll go to that with mine, too. <laughs> uh, okay, so so you said, so premise two, for an interaction between two things, there must be a context that is a middle ground in which that interaction takes place. Otherwise, it cannot be causally related. So you're saying there has, so in order for A to interact with B, there has to be a C. Is that correct? Sure. Yes. Okay. And how does A interact with C? Why would I be the one answering this question? I thought you were the one. Answering because that's your premise too. Your premise too is there has to be an inter- some type of intermediate context and something, some intermediate mechanism. How are you going to avoid an infinite regress? Uh, I don't know, but it does seem to be you're shifting the burden of proof here. No, no. <laughs> okay, so real quick, a little educational moment about logic, and in, in that, yeah, Eric is right in that it's Maxwell's argument, so he bears the burden of defending the premises in the argument. You can't just present an argument and say, okay, now you must refute my argument. Uh, the one presenting the argument has the burden of defending it. So Maxwell himself is the one who's actually uh, shifting the burden of proof in a way that's, oh, there's a word I'm looking for. Inappropriate? <laughs> Inappropriate, I guess, would be a good word. Uh, there, yeah, there's a word specifically to the case I was trying to think of, but in, inappropriate is a perfectly fine word to, to describe it. So, yeah, in, in a way that's inappropriate, he's basically asking Eric to do his own work of defending or rejecting the argument. So, I'll yeah, do just, some work for him. I'll steel man him here and say, I think what Stellman is trying to say is, and based on the, the terminology that Eric used, let's say it this way so that visually in our minds it, it, it looks better. In order, you know, you've got A, and let's say A is the soul, and you've got C, and C is the physical body, and B would be the uh, middle ground where the interaction takes place. So, how does A interact with C? Well, there has to be a B, and mm-hmm. what um, and and what uh, what Stelman or what uh, Maxwell Yates is trying to say is there can't be a B when this A and that C are what they are. And I would just say you do have a burden of proof to show that that can't be the case. You have to show that it's impossible that these two things can interact. And I don't think that he could show that. Okay, so continuing on. The mic of the claim, it's your premise. It's your burden to to bear, not mine. I'm just asking the questions. It seems like a bad argument to me based on premise two. Sure, but here's the thing. I'm not claiming that the, the that the interaction is indeed taking place. So if I can't answer how the interaction takes place, that's not a problem for me. I don't believe the interaction is taking place. You do believe the interaction is taking place. Now, see right there, right, right there, he is making a claim because he's saying that it can't take place, right, mm-hmm. isn't he? Premise two, for an interaction between two things, there must exist a context that is a middle ground in which the interaction, but the mind is related to the material. Well, I don't, I don't know. It... I mean, maybe he doesn't explicitly say, but I think this goes back to the structural problem of the argument. He's trying to say there is, there can't be a place where that takes place. And then he would bear a burden of proof. Yeah. And so I think part of the the problem here is, is that his argument isn't structured very well. Like, you know, we all, I think we all understand the argument he's trying to make, but if, if Maxwell does happen upon this uh, review, I would just say, you know, take it back to the woodshed and, and uh, work on a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, because it, it is dirty, isn't it? Well, it is. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that's can the thing. Be. they can be. But... Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about about arguments is they can be wordy because a term in your premise can be long, just like it can also be short. But properly speaking, these aren't really premises because a premise in an argument uh, needs to take some kind of of logical form, either a, a categorical statement or a hypothetical statement or some kind of, some kind of statement where you can actually address the premises. And here it's, it's kind of worded in everyday English, not really in, in any sort of logical form. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to analyze too, because he's putting it in a, in a formal syllogism, but he's not using the, the types of statements which ought to be used in a categorical or in, in any type of syllogism. So that's making it a little bit more difficult to analyze also. Yeah. Also, it's pretty complex, like space and spacelessness, material and immaterial. Pick one. You know, mm-hmm. don't, don't try to accomplish both of those things in one argument. Right. Yeah. And again, like some of the terms he's using are, are incorrect, too. Like uh, they're not excluded middles because the law of excluded middle is that for any uh, any proposition is either true or false. There's no in between. So, uh, you know, I, I get what he's trying to say. Like, yeah, like space and spaceless are two extremes, but. I think it has a little work to do to show us that, you know, there's nothing in between. Like, how come something can't be partially spatial and partially spaceless or something like that? So that's probably all we need to do about that. So I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead here to his next argument. His next argument is actually structured a lot better and uh, a lot easier to understand as well. And uh, yeah, uh, Maxwell's chest hair game is on point too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. German. You have no idea whether you're right or wrong. I would say there's clearly much more going on up here than a calculator. I would hope. Ah, I'd beg to differ, but okay. I would anyway. Okay, so so real quick, because that sounded like a really mean jab. Uh, is is Eric kind of playing along with Maxwell's character? Yeah. Is that going on? Yeah, okay. that's what's going on. I don't believe if this was a real atheist, he would be quite so blunt. <laughs> that's that's what I figured. Now that you've kind of explained Maxwell's yeah. character. So yeah. I wanted to just stop and clarify that just for those who are, are listening or may have, you know, come in late or something uh, that <laughs> Eric is not being, not being needlessly cruel to an atheist. It's, it's, right. it's the person. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's his next argument. Uh, so if the soul exists, we cannot have knowledge of the existence of other minds, but we do have knowledge of the existence of other minds. Therefore the soul does not exist. Great. Well-formulated argument. It's in the form of modus tollens. Uh, yeah. Do you want to comment on this before we listen to the interaction a little bit? Um, well, I think, well, let's listen to the interaction. I think he's bringing up the problem with rationality. Um, but let's, let's go ahead and hear a little bit of it. Yeah. So, so formally speaking, the argument is logically valid. And so of course the question is, is it sound? So here, here's the uh, interaction between, uh, Maxwell and Eric. Premise one, if the soul exists, we cannot have knowledge of the existence of other minds. I assume that's where you want to push back. I do have justification. Premise two, but we do have knowledge of the existence of other minds. Therefore, the soul does not exist. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> I pushed the wrong button. Um, we. So your premise. So first of all, I reject premise one. I don't, I don't even know how. I would. I, I would need. I would need you to back that up. But let, let me look at premise two really quick. But we do have knowledge of the existence of other minds. How so? How do you know other minds exist? Well, uh, see, I think this is particularly uh, – well, well, there's two things I'd like to say. But the first I'll just say is um, because I believe I'm fundamentally a biological machine, and that's what I believe the mind ultimately boils down to, then Wait, I can so – the mind is a machine? 
we, we've been through this. It is caused we by have. the biological your mouth. In, in the physical biological. This biological machine produces experiences, and we label that the mind. Right. So, so the mind is a function of the brain. I'm. I'm just. I, I would like my previous arguments to stand on their own merits because I. I don't know if we have because again it depends on what you're talking about when you say the word mind. Well, like, I'm asking you. It's your argument. It's your argument. So you, you tell me what you mean. It's your argument. Okay, but this is this is a. I think you accused me of this earlier. It's. A, I know you are, but what am I thing? I mean. <laughs> no. No. I, I. I actually gave my definition of mind in my opening. I know it was brief and quick because I wanted to get to this. Uh, but I, you haven't told me what you think. What. Let, let me just re-ask the question. Is the mind a function of the brain? Yes or no? Is that your position? The experiences and first-person experiences and the qualia that I call the mind, yes, are ultimately produced by the brain. So, yes, the mind is a function of the brain? Sure. If you want to use that language, I'll go with it now. <clears throat> okay. Are it's functions true or false? It's not merely a function. I see, but now you're talking about the, the beliefs that correlate to the information that's stored in the functions of the brain. Well, well so when you say, well, that's why I asked you the question, you're kind of, you're not seeming to want to answer. If it is a function, if that is, is an is of identity, then well, it, go I, ahead. No, no, I mean, here's, here's the thing is, I think we're getting off, off the path here. I mean, um, as you always as, say that every time you get trapped in a corner, you always say, well, we're okay, but here's, here's the, here's the point. Would you and I let's let's forget either of our justification for this? Would you and I agree on the second premise here? Say, say again. Would I, I agree, agree with the second premise <clears throat> that we do have not? I would say yes, but I think I have a justification for that. I don't know how you could possibly have a justification for that. But this is not an argument against my position. It's an argument against yours. I can say maybe I don't have uh, knowledge of the existence of other minds. Fine, but this isn't an argument against my position. Well, then your argument doesn't work. It's an objection if you don't think premise two is true. I'm. Well, the point the point is, is you think premise two is true. Uh huh. Okay, so I'm not entirely clear of, of what was going on here. Let me see. Let me see if you agree with this, Rexton. That Maxwell here seems to be saying that I don't necessarily think these are true premises, but they work against your position. And so, therefore, if you can't refute this argument, your position is false. Is that kind of what's going kind on of, here? I, I think that the character, Maxwell, thinks that he does, he can affirm premise two, but he knows that because he's familiar with all of this, he knows that um, Eric wants to push back and say that he can't have justified knowledge claims based on his position. So he's just trying to circumvent going down that road and say, let's not worry about that right now. You affirm premise two. So, this so if you would affirm these things then then it'll defeat your position that's what i understand it to be saying i still don't know what's up with premise one i think eric's right that makes no sense to me i don't know what he's saying yeah and again this is why you know he needs to defend his argument because it's certainly not obviously true that we can't have knowledge of the existence of other minds that the soul exists so he needs to do at least some work of of defending that premise because I, I think i think two is obviously true you know, I have no, I have no problem affirming number two yeah. without needing any additional evidence or argumentation from Maxwell. But number one, right. I think, is is the controversial premise here and needs Maxwell to to defend it. Why does the soul? Why would the soul mean we can't know the existence of other minds? I don't get it. Right. Yeah. Did they get so, into that, by the way, I don't remember. 
I don't remember either. I mean, I just I just watched it yesterday, and I, I don't recall him giving at least a clear defense of premise one. I left the debate not still not knowing why he thinks premise one is true. So yeah. it's possible I may have missed it, but I, I don't think he he really defended premise one very well, if at all. So let's spend, so let's go ahead and go for it a little bit. See if he does address it. You know, we'll, we'll spend a, a few more minutes, and then uh, and then after that, we can go ahead and start to wind this down a little bit. Here's the further interaction here. Right. So the, the I reject premise one. Uh, okay. Now let me really briefly get into my justification for this. So the yeah. idea okay. is, it is. That's right. knowledge. Okay. Would we at least agree on the definition of knowledge being justified true belief? Sure. Okay. Good. Which means if it's going to be justified. It has the, the the probability has to be greater than 50 50 right it has to at least be 149 uh, i don't know if i'd say that but let's go with that uh because uh, okay. i'm looking into some bayesian stuff um i admittedly haven't even opened a book on that but let's go with it Why not? Have I. i'm just naturally this intelligent so knowledge is justified true belief it has to be greater than 50 50 for the for you to have that knowledge of the existence of other minds so my point is is if you have no, a, wait hold on Knowledge, say that again, knowledge of what the has to be greater of, than 50-50? The, the reason to believe that there are existence of other minds has to be greater than 50-50 for it to count as knowledge. And how would you measure that? Yes. Well, that's why I was asking you if you grant it. You said for the sake of argument, you grant it has to be greater than 50-50. So I'm just going with what you're well, Sure, and then, and then to – right, and I'm asking how would you measure that? Like if I'm granting it, it's, I'm saying, okay, let, let's go with that. Given that you've thought about this and you're naturally this smart, how would you measure? How would you measure that? Well, Help me out here. As you granted, it has to be granted 50-50. I could grant for sake of argument that all we need is fifty-one forty-nine in favor of the existence of other minds, and I'll and I'll agree with you that we counted as knowledge. That doesn't help me answer how you measure that. Well, what specifically do you mean by measuring it? Maybe I'm missing what you're asking me. So what can? What do I point to that says this makes it 50-50? Oh, well, all things being equal, right? If you have an argument, let's say you have one argument, or let's say you have 10 arguments that shift it to 51 and only nine arguments that would shift it the other way, well, then it's going to be 51-49. Are, are you talking about a degree of confidence? Yes. Uh, I mm -hmm. prefer to go by evidence, not just what people subjectively believe about the evidence, but sure, I guess I can go well, down that well, that's what I'm asking you. How, how do you, what, how do I, how can we make this 4951 not subjective? Well, I would say the evidence for it. If there's evidence, like if there's clear, like if there's clearly evidence that the, uh, it's, it's again, it's one of those areas where I, I can't say exactly where to draw the line, but obviously there's a line. Obviously, when it comes to knowing the earth is round, the evidence in favor of a round earth has crossed beyond. <clears throat> Yeah, so he does like okay, so we still he does haven't gotten to the to the he still hasn't given us why the soul is a problem. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So even if we accept his view of the fifth one forty nine, why would the soul make it less likely that we have knowledge of other minds? Right. And so yeah, this is the justification he tries to offer. And as I was watching this the first time, I do remember now thinking that that is a very weak understanding of knowledge because you know, he is offering here a couple of 
or attempting to offer a couple of deductive arguments and deductive arguments logically do arrive at certainty. Mm -hmm. So I think he is trying to talk about one's level of certainty, but he's forgetting that there are such a thing as inductive arguments, which don't lead to certainty, but lead to probability. Mm -hmm. And so you can have an inductively weak argument, which is an argument that gives you less than 50% confidence in a point of view but it could i don't see any reason why that wouldn't count as knowledge even if you have less than a 50 percent chance it's just your your level of certainty on it would be less than if it were greater than 50 percent. yeah yeah i like that mm-hmm. yeah well this is where eric make made a good point about it. it sounds almost like he's getting into bayesian uh stuff like what would i need to do to increase your confidence or decrease your confidence and all that sort of thing. And I, I'm with Eric. The, I know there are a lot of people that like the base theorem type stuff, and I, but it's not my cup of tea. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't even understand it completely. I, I get the basic idea, but the, but the point, but the point we're still trying to get to is yeah. Okay. I, we measure it by our confidence. How subjectively confident are we based on what has been presented as reasons to believe? Okay. Okay. Great. Now, why does the soul, why, sh- why does the soul make it such that we can't know that other minds exist? I, I'm j- I don't see anything there. I, I may even call him and ask him after we get done because I want to yeah. know what, what's going on with that. Yeah. You know, I think that's a good, uh, good stopping point there. Uh, obviously, like I said, I'm going to put the, uh, the link to it in the show notes so that uh, if anyone's interested in watching the whole debate, uh, they can just go to, go to that link. And uh, as you're watching it, maybe keep some of the things we talked about in mind as, uh, as Maxwell is defending his arguments and responding to Eric's and, and see if, if he does present any sort of uh, response or, or critique of these views to, to your satisfaction. Because I, I don't remember really strong arguments uh other than what we talked about but you know my, my memory is not always uh very reliable either, do you so. view this debate differently now that you know the truth about it like that he's uh just an actor basically i, I view their interactions differently <laughs> like i, I for, now i'm thinking of it as less combative and more of just goofing around basically yeah. uh, so and and uh and so maxwell's arguments would be the arguments as presented by the actual guy behind maxwell yates right that's right. Well, yeah. And he really tries. He really tries to do the best job he can. And Jim Amberg even said in the chat here that he thought that uh, Maxwell Yates did a better job presenting a case against the mm-hmm. soul than some of the other people that Eric has debated. And I yeah. think I would agree. Okay. Yeah. So, because, you know, arrogance is like, is one of the things that, that I just, I just can't stand, especially if two people are coming together debating where you're supposed to just, interact with the arguments and not attack each other personally. Like arrogance is the one thing that can really, really get my goat, so to speak, when, when I see that in a debate. It's, it's one, one reason why I can only watch about 17 minutes of the presidential debate on Monday, because yeah. there, there was, you know, no one was interacting with ideas. They were just name calling and talking over each other. And, and well, I, I just, and, and it's a good, you know, there are things about debates that people don't think about and they don't realize are, are as you know, in the minds of some audience members are as important or more important than the content of what you're saying. And that is, is this guy likable? Do I, you know, do I, do I have a trust, do I trust him? You know, um, is he the kind of, I mean, look, 
you know, I I don't know if you watched the show The Office or or did watch The Office. I've uh, seen the first six seasons of it. Oh, okay. Uh, well, then you're very familiar I, with The Office. I could never see the appeal, but I had a friend who loved it and said, "Hey, you got to watch the show." So I, I gave it an honest chance. I watched like the first six seasons. Okay, so I if I don't, I don't, if, if I knew nothing else about the characters but one episode, which means I don't really have much evidence to go on. I'm going to yeah. trust the character of Jim a lot yeah. more than I'm going to trust the character of say Michael, Michael um, Steve Carell's character. Why? Right. Because not well, besides the incompetence, Jim's just more likable, man. I mean, we all love the character that Michael plays. Right. But, 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 uh, but Jim just comes across much more likable. And, and, and so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to go with what he says more. And people right. think that way, whether they realize that or not. Um, and so the, the audience in terms of audience perception that's really important. I think there are some people who are self-conscious about how they think the audience is perceiving them. And so they get more combative to try and show that like they really were the one with the bravado or something. But I've just yeah. found that you want to be firm. You want to be cordial. You don't want to look weak, um, but you want to be likable. And I think those are things that I wish the internet debate community would pick up on. Yeah. So, so again, you know, I was totally wrong about Maxwell Yates. I'm perfectly fine admitting that I was wrong about him. And I'm, I'm glad to see that he, he's someone who can actually take these ideas seriously. That, that really, because uh, yeah, because a lot of these YouTube debates and, you know, I've debated Matt Dillahunty a couple of times and I've seen Aaron Raw debate. And, you know, I, I know that a lot of times it can just devolve into, into, you know, low blows and things like that. And, you know, that's why I tend to shy away from debating and I prefer to just have discussions because, you know, number one, when you debate, the debating is never to convince your opponent. It's always to convince the people listening. And even then, if, if the people listening treat it more like a, like a sport, than they do an uh, opportunity to, to learn about a few different things, they're not going to be convinced anyway. So there's only going to be a few people kind of in, in the middle who are genuinely interested in changing their minds if they, if they hear a better argument. So in general, uh, I prefer discussions over debating because you're more likely to have good interactions. But if you find someone who can debate well uh, and takes it seriously and doesn't devolve into low blows, then yeah, it, it can be a great way to, to investigate a point of view. Because I actually, you know, my mind actually, you're more likely to change my mind after rigorous debate than calling me names or, or something. So, yeah. That's right. I agree. Okay. We're basically coming up to the end here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to, to add as a kind of a closing thought here? Just that I really appreciate you having me on the channel and I'm honored that you would invite me. And um, I think that we have incredibly good reason to believe in the soul, even if one didn't accept everything related to Christianity I think that what makes the best sense of the human experience for the reasons that Eric lays out. And some of those, yeah, are based on intuition and some of them are based on brain science and some of them philosophical. But um, if, but let's go to the intuition just for the average listener. If you think about it, are you the same person that you were like, not in terms of a poetic sense of it, like I've changed. So I'm not the same person. Are, are you literally a different human being than you were when you were uh, two years old? Are you a different person when you're asleep and unconscious? Are you a different person after the cells of your body cycle out into new cells and the physical material is different? You know that you're not a different person. And if you really believe that, the only viable explanation that I and others like me see is that you have an immaterial aspect that is your soul, which we can call personhood. And um, I think that's important. And on a channel devoted to pro-life issues, 
I think it's important when we consider what's going on with an unborn child. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's very well said. Okay, so we are coming up to the end of the time here. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the discussion, whether you listened in live or you're listening on the Pro-Life Thinking podcast. Once again, if you have the means available, uh, we'd, we'd love for you to become a, a financial supporter. I, I am affiliated with Life Training Institute, so you can actually go to the Life Training Institute website, which is prolifetraining.com, and uh, click on Donate on the menu on the top, and you can make a donation. Uh, just make sure you put it in my name. You can make a one-time gift or, or a monthly gift, whatever you have the means to do. Uh, we talked a little bit last time about kind of what the donations go toward books to keep up with the academic discussion and, you know, possibly along the line, hopefully, uh, you know, getting a studio at some point. And uh, Braxton himself also has a YouTube page, and I believe he uh, has a Patreon also. So if you appreciate Braxton's work, uh, go on to uh, Trinity Radio and subscribe there. And, you know, feel free to subscribe to our channel. Our channel is new. This is actually the first broadcast we've done on the channel. Uh, we've done the, the podcast for a few years now, but uh, we wanted to kind of move forward because we know that a lot of people appreciate not just the live video aspect of it, but also the opportunity to come in and interact, post comments, and you know get your get your comments uh, up on the screen like we, like I've been doing here uh, with this one. So so if you if you want to see more of this, uh, feel free to subscribe here and check out uh, Trinity Radio with with Braxton as well. Once again, we want to thank the, uh, the live viewers here. Thank you, Braxton, for doing the show, and we will see you next time. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.